The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. thoughtful people are reading what she says and they are re-examining what happened during that mini budget. Who's running our economy, our Prime Minister, as she was, or the OBR? I do think she is moving the needle on the broader economic debate, which is precisely what she wanted to do. The amount of deaths that probably will be eventually linked to the pandemic, I suspect will be way more than were caused by COVID. One. We have left off. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. She's back, co-pilot. After a period of silence that was almost as short as her premiership, Liz Truss is, as they say in Westminster, on manoeuvres. Having landed a massive 4,000-word piece in last weekend's Sunday Telegraph, so much more space than I get, <laughs> the former Prime Minister then launched a near-hour-long Exocet interview with the splendid folk at Spectator TV. Why? Because, says Truss, her premiership was thwarted by what she calls a left-wing economic establishment. Impossibly gloomy forecasts, she argues, by the likes of the Office for Budget Responsibility and the rest of the Whitehall blob, stymies any chance of tax cuts, the case for which the Tory party, says Truss, has anyway stopped making. There's a lot going on, Alison. Rishi Sunak's mini reshuffle. The Church of England angsting about what gender God is. Yes, really. And of course, there's been heartbreaking news from Turkey. But let's kick off with what La Pearson makes of the return of La Trasse. <laughs> Did she do herself any favours? Why are they giving us so much more space than you? It's a travesty. What does she know? An outrage. <laughs> She's learned everything she knows from you. I think we should tell Planet Normal listeners a top secret thing. You had a bit of an assignation with Liz this week. Two hours in private, the co-pilot. I think she's a bit sweet on you and your economic theories, Halligan. Before we get the inside scoop, yeah, as you say, just 100 days since she was ignominiously booted out of number 10 and she wrote her I was right, they'd done me wrong essay for the Sunday Telegraph. I think we'll have a link to that in the show notes. It was very interesting reading it, Liam, because quite a lot of what she was pointing out about her plan for growth, wanting to reverse the proposed rise in national insurance and the big hike in corporation tax, kickstarting a programme of economic reform, as she saw it, to prevent recession and stagnation. And as you said at the top, you know, this went against the instinctive view of the Treasury and the wider orthodox economic ecosystem. We have, in fact, seen that national insurance rise cancelled. There's a question mark over this corporation tax rise. What did you make of her case, Liam? I mean, to me, look, we can talk about the reckless mishandling of the political presentation, but surely much of what she's saying economically is what my learned co-pilot has been saying for a long time. Well, I did see Liz Truss on, on Thursday night and we had a long chat about the economy, about the piece she was submitting to the Sunday Telegraph. I wouldn't say she was contrite. I don't really <laughs> think that's in her, her nature, no. but she was certainly very, very thoughtful and she was a lot more willing to concede where she had made mistakes, as indeed she conceded at points in her essay and her spectator interview than most commentators 
have suggested. I mean, look, most people in the country, they got better things to do with all respect to the former prime minister than read her long essay and watch her interview. However well it was conducted by Casey Balls and Fraser Nelson, respectively, political editor and editor of The Spectator. But I do think she showed some contrition. She did acknowledge she's not the best communicator. She did acknowledge that she tried to do a lot of things all at once. But on her central point that the tax burden tax as a share of GDP is at a 70-year high and it needs to come down, on her central point, she is correct. And I think what the essay has done, even though you're of course, going to get all the naysayers and the doomsters and the and the, the knockers basically saying a period of silence would be in order from the former prime minister, including within her own party. A lot of thoughtful people are reading what she says and they are re-examining what happened during that mini mm. budget, why there was the market meltdown that there was. What role did the Bank of England play in that market meltdown? What are these liability-driven investment vehicles anyway? And did the then Prime Minister know about them? And if not, why wasn't she told? And the bigger picture here is that we're in a very different place economically from last September, October, the time of that mini-budget and its tumultuous aftermath. Inflation is now falling. Interest rates have almost peaked, most people think. We can see, if we look closely, as financial markets do, far more than journalists, at financial surveys, industrial surveys, supply chain surveys and so on, we can see some green shoots coming through. It may be that the UK avoids recession. Certainly, the Bank of England's forecast of two years of recession, a ridiculously gloomy forecast, in my view, has now been reined back to just one year and three months of recession. Again, in my view, ridiculously gloomy. So I do think there is some light at the end of the tunnel. I do think inflation is coming down now across the world. And in that situation, financial markets aren't nearly as skittish as they were. And the very bond markets who we're told didn't want her to freeze corporation tax at 19%, reversing what was then Rishi Sunak's plan and legislation to increase it from 19 to 25% this coming April, April 2023. Of course, Sunak and Hunt have now reinstated that corporation tax rise that's going to happen Mm -hmm. in April. I think financial markets would actually cheer if Jeremy Hunt said, you know what, we are actually going to freeze corporation tax at 19% in order to give hard-pressed, lockdown-ravaged, energy-bill-soaked UK companies a bit of a break. But I think the political class sees the mini-budget And it's utter reversal as so totemic that they can't actually see now the economic wood for the trees. And throughout all her bluster and her, some would say, lack of contrition, I think that's a bit unfair, Mm. but all the political theatre of her massive essay and super duper interview, almost an hour long, as I said, I do think she is moving the needle on the broader economic debate, which is precisely what she wanted to do. Was any alcohol consumed at this Halligan Trust summit? I can't. I can't say too much. And one of one of Liz's, you know, I won't mention his name, but a very very well respected journalist and former special advisor in Whitehall is now working with Liz Truss, and and he was in the room as well. 
Ah, and the fact that okay. she's attracted him to her private office, if you like, is also quite interesting. And it has been a bit of a media operation. And again, she hasn't been trying to impress people who read The Guardian and The Independent. She hasn't been trying to impress our learned colleagues at the BBC and ITV News. She's been talking to the Conservative Party and to financial markets. And in that sense, you won't read much about it in the papers. But I do think a large chunk of her message landed quite well over recent days. Yes, I I think that she brushes over a bit easily the abolition of the 45p tax rate, which was announced into a time of growing hardship in the UK. I think most people would agree that was pretty, pretty tone deaf of her, even though she's pointing out that, you know, that was the top rate for the vast majority of the Blair Labour government. We called it tin ear, didn't we, on Planet Norm? We, did. we, actually, we actually said it was, in, some would say it was venal to do that at a time when so many people were struggling with their bills. Yeah, I think it's just a sign of, of her, you know, being high on the economic theories and less of an emotional intelligence about the, the practical policies. I mean, I think that something that comes across for me, and we want to go on and talk about this in relation to other other ministers as well, apart from trust, is the sort of sense that she was the Prime Minister, Liam. But in a way, what she's saying is that there is this sort of resistance within the system, in the Treasury. Economic sentiment has shifted leftwards. Conservatives have stopped making the arguments for low tax, high growth. They've increasingly triangulated with Labour policy, aided and abetted by a civil service which, again, we're going to talk about that in a minute, is very happy with occupying the liberal left ground and not pushing a case for growth. And we are very sluggish, our economy, as we've talked about many times. She said, actually, it was interesting, she said, this is trust. I saw firsthand during my years as Chief Secretary to the Treasury that pessimism and scepticism about the growth of the potential of the British economy are sadly endemic at the Treasury. Serious planning reform was dismissed as not politically deliverable. Discussing monetary policy was taboo. Deregulation of financial services and other industries were viewed as undermining the prospects of a deal with the EU. And this is an interesting bit for us, co-pilot. Brexit was seen as a damage limitation exercise rather than a once-in-a-generation opportunity. So what she's talking about is is a sort of an acceptance of a rather genteel managed decline. And something I wanted to ask you about was the role of the OBR, which was set up, wasn't it, to keep government forecasts honest. However, when I read Truss's essay, I was thinking that is one of the unintended consequences of having the OBR, that the Treasury and the government is losing the ability to develop its own policies and drive them through who's running our economy our prime minister as she was or the obr i think there is something in that you know a lot of these boffins who are at the top of the obr and the top of the treasury i literally grew up with these people i did undergraduate degrees advanced degrees with them i know them well our kind of outlook on the world has diverged, I'd say, as I've gone off and worked in business and been a journalist rather than a full-time professional economist, which I previously was. And so I say this with respect to these people, but they are incredibly gloomy about the business acumen, the entrepreneurial vim of the British economy. 
they are incredibly gloomy about the ability of government policy to change the weather, to impact massively investment decisions in boardrooms across the country. And we're going to put in the show notes of the episode a link to a, a thread I put on Twitter. Yes, and it's really easy. Listeners yeah. can just click on it and they'll go through to Twitter, even if they don't use Twitter regularly. And on that thread are some graphs that I managed to put together after rummaging around in the national accounts. They're not the kind of graphs that appear near the front of documents from the OBR and the Treasury. But the OBR put out a technical document recently, which compared its forecasts with outcomes. And again, this isn't the kind of stuff that's press released and put on the Tea Time News. But it's absolutely incredible reading, Alison. In March 2021, the OBR forecast for the coming tax year, so April 2021 to April 2022. So this is a forecast of the immediate future. It's not like a five-year forecast. It's a forecast of the immediate future. In March 2021, the OBR forecast that government borrowing in the UK would be £234 billion, roughly, right? Mm. It turned out to be £125 billion. Mm. That's £108 billion out. A forecast for the period of which starts one month from when the forecaster was made. £100 billion. And we have all these endless arguments about, oh, in six years' time, the OBR says there's going to be a £12 billion black hole. How are you going to fill it, Minister, right? A hundred billion pounds out. Even corporation tax. In March 2021, the OBR said they'd raise 38.5 billion pounds from corporation tax in the following tax year, April 21 to April 22. And they actually raised 63 billion pounds, 58% more than the OBR forecast. And both those forecasts, a huge overestimate of borrowing and a huge underestimate of corporation tax revenue are gloomy. They constrain the scope for further tax cuts. They constrain the scope for using the government balance sheet to stimulate the economy. They rein in any kind of political aspiration to be active in the economy with either tax cuts or some judicious uses of public spending as stimulus. They act, Alison, because the media takes them as gospel science. Mm. They're not science, they're economics. That isn't a science. Take it from me. It's a dismal science at best. It is the dismal science. (laughs) But they they, they act as a straitjacket on policymaking, Alison. Now, of course, we need something like the OBR. We can't have politicians just borrowing huge amounts of money to buy votes willy-nilly. I don't think that's what happened during the mini-budget. We'll come back to that. But we seem to have gone to the other side of the spectrum where the OBR is so determined to paint a gloomy picture and i say that with huge regret and the media takes their forecasts as an absolute certain outcome in the economy in years to come even forecasts that three four five years ahead and that means that ministers really can't lead they can't take risks and good policy making is about business acumen judicious risk taking and instinct And there is no scope for that while the OBR is holy writ, judge and jury on where the economy's going. Oh, I do love it when you know what you're talking about. (laughs) Wheeling out your graphs. (laughs) I prefer your graphs to Patrick Valance's graphs, I can tell you. (laughs) 
Next slide, please. Next slide, please. I think well, that's right. I mean, the OBR was one of the institutions being used as a mighty sort of stick to beat little Liz out of number 10, wasn't it? And if, if, as you say, it's not accurate or, dare we say, not just not accurate, wildly inaccurate and possibly with some other agenda, you know, possibly wanting to get rid of a certain type of political attitude. And that, and that brings us on, Liam, to the lead of my column in The Telegraph this week was about Dominic Raab. He won't have failed to see all the headlines insisting that Raab must quit, Rishi Sunak must sack his Deputy Prime Minister and Justice Secretary. There are eight formal complaints of bullying against Dominic Raab, which he denies, apparently coming from dozens of officials. And we've currently got Adam Tolley KC leading an investigation into Rob's behaviour. Now, this, Halligan, you know, comes after the notorious and inflammatory episode during a meeting at the Ministry of Justice where Dominic Rob allegedly opened his pret salad and threw three cherry tomatoes. It was like that. What's that festival in Valencia? La Tomatina. <laughs> Unbelievable. It's sort of where people go on their gap year. <laughs> if if they haven't got the guts to do the running of the balls at Pamplona, the balls. They, yes. they go they go and douse themselves in tomatoes, don't they, in Valencia? Well, it was a major trauma to all these poor civil servants in the the plopping of the tomatoes onto the brown paper bag. So, quick, let's all go into counselling because this terrible man is throwing about cherry tomatoes. Now, you know it, it's funny in a way, but of course we've got now this daily leaking to the media of things that Rob is alleged to have done. And I mounted a a, a defence of him in my column because I was reading these so-called allegations and they're absolutely hilarious, really. So listen to this. It's a civil servant complaining. It wasn't shouting or throwing things about the room. It was more insidious, particularly with junior staff. He could be very icy. He'd be given a piece of paper and there would be a silence and he'd say, this isn't good enough. The official would be stammering, uh, uh, and he'd be saying, this isn't right. It's not good enough. I can't accept this. You don't have to be physically aggressive for people to be scared. Now, co-pilot, to those of us who entered the workplace 30, 40, even 50 or 60 years ago, that sounds absolutely pathetic, is a demanding boss one who likes things to be done properly and on time abusive. And Rob was expecting briefing documents to be in the required form and properly checked. He was telling people their work wasn't up to scratch. And is that now called bullying? And if it is, how the hell are standards in public office and indeed national life going to be maintained? Now, I went on to say that this feels a lot like a political hit job to me. And it seems that every time a Conservative minister tries to tell the Whitehall machine to do what the electorate voted for, there are people briefing that they're bullies. Now, that happened with Pretty Patel. Your mate Gavin Williamson. Yeah, well, you know, some good <laughs> and some bad. But I guess what I'm asking you, and this is a very serious question, have we effectively got a fifth column in the civil service, running or not running the country. I fear we are not very far from the point where the definition of bullying is, quotes, minister trying to enact conservative manifesto pledge who gets a bit cross when prevented from doing so by liberal mandarins. 
I do think it's like you. I've met Dominic Raab a few times. You wouldn't say that his character was warm, but no. I didn't think he was particularly rude at all. I just thought he came across as, a, as, as what he is, a serious guy, mm. you know, who's been a high-powered lawyer and is now a high-powered politician. Look, there are half a million-odd sort of civil servants of the fifth of the workforce that works for the public sector and only the very top and most able civil servants will be those in and around the private office of a cabinet minister you know in meetings with a cabinet minister and the idea that these people can't stand a bit of frostiness when they haven't presumably according to Rob and this is his version of events done what he wanted him to do the idea that that would be seen as bullying strikes me as ridiculous if what we've heard about the language that the secretary of state used is true then you know call me old-fashioned but it wouldn't be out of keeping you know for a school teacher to say that to a sort of stroppy 14 year old who clearly had ability but wasn't pulling his or her weight you know you can't always be nice particularly when people aren't doing what you want them to do and they are in your employ So it does strike me that there's been a a whispering campaign at best, you know, possibly a a full-blown smear campaign against this guy, whatever you think of of him personally. I was interested, you know, Hugo Rifkin, who's no sort of friend of Dominic Raab's part of the Tory party, a very distinguished journalist, son, of course, he won't mind me mentioning, of former Cabinet Secretary Malcolm Rifkin, but a very, very good journalist, arch-remainer in his own words, and Raab, of course, voted leave. And Hugo Rifkin mounted a defence in The Times, if I'm allowed to mention um, another Mm. newspaper. And I thought that was politically very interesting because, like you, Hugo concluded that the charges being laid at the feet at the moment of Dominic Raab were just ridiculous. And I do think there are some very, very, very over-entitled civil servants knocking about. And I do think that since Brexit, a lot of them have got very, very, very angry indeed. And they need to wind their necks in. They need to realise that they are public servants. And just to finish on the OBR, look, a lot of people listening to this at the OBR will know me personally and will have known me for 20, 30 years as I came up through the ranks of British academia and, and economics and so on. And so let me say, I'm not saying for one minute that economic forecasting is easy at all. What I'm saying, though, is that economic forecasting is just that, a forecast. And forecasts are not destiny. And we can't allow ourselves, as members of the general public, as voters, as consumers of media, to feel that just because somebody at the OBR, with the best will in the world, does some Excel spreadsheet magic and comes up with a forecast, it is just that. It is an educated guess. That's what economic forecasts are are and they cannot pose unreasonable limits on the ability of elected politicians to lead and in my view that's been what's happening if you're finding this podcast interesting you may also like ukraine the latest every weekday the telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of president putin's invasion of ukraine from our newsroom in london and from the ground. 
The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. We thought this week we'd invite onto the rocket one of the Telegraph's own. Sarah Napton is what's known in our trade as a Fleet Street doyen. Having spent a decade as a Telegraph science editor, this former Society of Editors Science Journalist of the Year is among the UK's most widely respected specialist correspondents. As Planet Normal regulars will know, Alison and I follow Sarah's work closely, often citing her articles. So welcome, Sarah. I wanted to start by asking you about something that Jonathan Sumption wrote recently in The Telegraph, the distinguished jurisprude, of course, former Supreme Court judge. The contribution of lockdowns to long-term excess deaths, wrote Sumption, from other causes, is becoming increasingly obvious. In your view, Sarah Napton, is that statement scientifically justified? I think it is justified, and I think it's probably been justified from the very beginning of the pandemic. I think we knew from the beginning we were going to have a huge fallout, and I always think that it wasn't so much as kicking the can down the road as the atom bomb. I mean, the amount of deaths that probably will be eventually linked to the pandemic, I suspect, will be way more than were caused by COVID. This week, I think excess deaths has gone down slightly, but we've been having figures that are up to nearly 3,000 excess deaths a week, which is It's huge amounts. When you think in the first lockdown in 2020, we were having about 213 deaths a day. And we're seeing now sort of 400 plus deaths a day from causes that aren't COVID. So, yeah, I think I think he's absolutely right. I think it's a huge problem. Sarah, you've been right at the centre of, I was going to say the biggest story of the past three years, but it's the biggest story of the century, isn't it? I'd like to know how it felt doing your job during this incredibly controversial and turbulent period. Did you, like us, get a lot of criticism for letting down one group or another? And do you think the government mantra that they were following the science was ever justified, given that surely there's no such thing as an agreed science? Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. And sort of coming back to the, the first part of that, I found it incredibly tough. And I think a lot of my colleagues have as well. I mean, we were, we were facing something that was entirely new, learning the science in real time. And I think because it was affecting everybody, everyone had a very personal view on it that often went beyond what the science was saying. It went beyond just being able to look at it from a very focused scientific point of view. I don't think anyone was really able to do that. It was difficult treading that line. I think scientists found it hard to tread that line. And I think you're right in the sense when they said they were following the science, it was almost impossible to do. I mean, there's no such thing as the science and there shouldn't ever be such a thing as the science. We should just be monitoring it in real time and making adjustments as it happens. And I think If anything, the government tried to pass the buck too much with that phrase, follow the science, and really wanted to use it as a way to apportion blame when they got things wrong. I think they wanted to be able to say, you know, what we we saw the modelling, we were told to do that. And so that they didn't have much blame themselves. But, you know, clearly, I think from the beginning, they needed to look far more widely than just the damage that the virus was causing. And they didn't. And we, we knew they didn't. And personally, for a journalist, 
bugging them all the time, trying to ask them, you know, where is this extra work you're doing on how it's going to affect the economy, how it's going to affect mental health or education? Where is that work? Who's doing that work? Where are the economists? Nobody was doing it. it was, the focus was so narrow that it was very difficult to do my job and try and come up with a kind of rounded view of what was going on and what was best for everyone because we, the data wasn't just there and the government wasn't even seeking the data. So that was very difficult. I think from a, just a personal perspective, I feel a little bit bruised, actually. I feel like I've pleased no one. I think trying to tread the middle ground is often the most difficult thing to do because you don't please anyone. You know, the people on one side say you're not doing enough and the people on the other say you're an idiot. So trying to walk that narrow line of really being balanced is really tricky. I feel a bit, I don't know, I've, I've lost slightly my faith in scientists. I always sort of held scientists up as this group that was kind of infallible. I was probably very naive and thought that they, you know, only had the greater good in their sights. And it's hit home to me just how partisan some scientists are. And I think academia can often be quite left-wing and quite paternalistic. And I think that really hit home in the pandemic. There was this real swathe of certain scientists who just, it was very obvious they wanted to control everything rather than allowing people to make up their own minds and do what was right for them and trust people to make sensible decisions. So you are a reporter, Sarah, obviously a very, very distinguished reporter and science editor of Britain's biggest selling quality newspaper. Alison and I are more, while we've both been reporters, we're a bit more bolshy. We're, we're more opinion writers, but we are all journalists. And I wondered what you think about how our trade covered lockdown, because an awful lot of people are angry at how journalists acted during lockdown, particularly broadcasters, but quite a lot of print journalists too. How did you feel in particular, Sarah, when as a specialist science journalist, you had to watch political editors at those Downing Street COVID briefings, asking wholly unscientific questions, asking repeatedly for lockdown to be faster, longer, firmer, trying to get their clips for the Tea Time News. How did that make you feel as a journalist? It was definitely unfortunate. And I think probably if they did it again, they would invite the science and health press in rather than the political journalists. I'm not sure it was particularly well done. I think on both sides, I don't think, you know, the political journalists didn't really understand the scientific arguments. And then the government kind of got bounced into decisions because they were being pressed, being on live TV with you know, <laughs> a very volatile press pack. So I think they were, they were struggling as much as anyone, but it was, it was very frustrating for us because we were having lots of background briefings with sort of Sir Patrick Vance and Chris Whitty and Often you would get situations where the, when we were at a time where people really weren't allowed to go outside very much and you were only allowed one walk a day and there was fears about you sort of meeting people even outside, which there was never any scientific basis for whatsoever. And we, you know, behind the scenes, we, we kept saying, this is nonsense. Anyone with a basic knowledge of fluid dynamics knows this is crazy. Like you can't get a virus when you're just walk, walking by the sea. I love it when journalists use phrases like fluid dynamics. My, my pulse quickens. <laughs> <laughs> but frustratingly, we'd be in these um, background briefings, which were, you know, unreportable, where they'd be agreeing with us sort of saying yeah you know we know it's we know it's stupid we know it's wrong you can't you know you won't get covid bumping into someone on the street and just having a, a two-second chat it's never happened before and then they'd be going on tv sort of almost saying the opposite and being in being pressured into saying the opposite and being pressured into you know political journalists would often throw these sort of ludicrous scenarios at 
the politicians who'd have to think on the spot how to deal with it. And you that ended up. That was a major failing, wasn't it, of our political and media class? We have all these incredibly experienced, incredibly knowledgeable people like you, not just at the Telegraph, across the press. And yet all we could do was put braying political reporters on the telly asking for lockdown to be firmer, firmer, firmer the whole time. No nuance at all. I agree, yeah. It was a strange time. It's one of those shouting at the telly kind of times. You just think this is this is crazy. You know, in some ways, some of the health and science teams on other papers didn't do that well either. I think we stuck our head above the parapet a lot more and questioned what was happening. And I think a lot of the science press really went along with what they were being fed. I think, you know, simply for fear that they didn't want to you know, get it wrong and cause people to do things that could cost lives. And I do understand that, but we're not the government. We're not, it's our job to be questioning stuff. And if you're not prepared to do that, I don't really think you should be in the job. I mean, that's what it's there for. Sarah, can we come on to the vaccine? Quite a fraught subject. Back at the beginning of the pandemic, Kate Bingham, the excellent vaccines are, said it was never a plan to vaccinate everyone, only the older population and vulnerable groups. Now, we've just seen the government saying it's withdrawing COVID jabs for the healthy under 50s from next week. I'm wondering what you think about the validity of ever needing to vaccinate healthy younger population, particularly teenagers and children. And then also to address the concerns about side effects. We've seen the British cardiologist Asim Malhotra raising the alarm about myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart, a side effect which has been linked to the mRNA vaccine. According to the British Heart Foundation, there have been around 30,000 more deaths than expected involving heart disease since the pandemic began. That's more than 250 additional deaths over expected rates each week. Do you think, A, that the rollout of the vaccine to the whole population was ever justified in terms of risk-benefit? And are these heart issues arising perhaps from general healthcare delays or might the COVID mRNA jabs play a role? So I think going back to the first point about whether the vaccine was ever needed for for healthy people, it's a really tricky one. I think when we first started going for vaccines, we really didn't know a lot about the virus at all. And so I think when the rollout began in kind of November, December 2020, it probably was for the best that everyone got it. At that point, we'd sort of gone back into second lockdown and the country was on its knees and it was an awful time. And I think if for nothing else to get us out of that, it was probably worth it. I think now it's difficult because I do think there is some sort of link between heart problems and the jab. And so I guess then you get to the question of whether the benefits are outweighing the risks. And I think arguably for younger people, they probably aren't. If you're a very healthy person, nothing wrong with you, no history or family history or genetic susceptibility to heart problems. I don't think you are going to put yourself much at harm by not having a jab these days compared to the risk of having it. And I think that's probably what most people would say now. It's a completely personal choice. I can understand if anyone wants to have it or not. You know, if I was in my 20s now, which was a long time ago, but and I was super healthy, nothing wrong with me, I wouldn't necessarily go for it because there clearly is some sort of, definitely an observational link that shows there's an increase in heart problems after particularly the mRNA jabs. And we don't know what the long-term outcome of that will be. 
And I think the other problem is people talk about vaccination has saved 112,000 lives in the first year alone. And you, you weigh that against how many people have died from heart problems or, or other things linked to it. And in a way, that's, it, that isn't the argument. People aren't statistics. Just because you've saved 112,000 lives over here doesn't mean this one person is expendable over here who would never have died because they weren't at risk in the first place. So for them, getting a COVID jab, you know, even if they had caught COVID, it wouldn't have probably done them much harm anyway. So it's, it's a really tricky one. And I don't think we'll have any answers probably for another decade. But I do think, I do think there's definitely something there with the heart problems. And I think there's good evidence of what might be causing it. There's a, an idea that when you get a jab, sometimes your body basically mistakes the protein it's trying to fight for proteins in the heart or peptides in the heart. And then it's kind of this idea of molecular mimicry. And then it starts fighting you. It basically causes autoimmunity and starts battling you rather than the virus. But that can happen. That happens with viruses. So if you get COVID, that will happen. That can happen to you as well. And so when you get the vaccine, that's kind of happening to you on a lower level to fewer people. So yeah, there's an issue there. I think people need to be aware of it. And I think people should be aware of it and they should be told about it so they can make up their own minds. It strikes me that if we didn't have the war in Ukraine going on, the cost of living crisis and so on, there'd be much more public and press comment about the upcoming public inquiry into COVID lockdown. I know you follow these issues very closely. So to give us an update about where we are, when we can expect that in public inquiry and what the scope of it may be. So the public inquiry should be starting, I think the first session start in the summer. It keeps getting pushed back and there's lots of preliminary inquiries. The initial ones will be looking at preparedness and whether we were ready for it. And then it will go on to how the government handled it and, and the aftermath and the collateral damage. So it does seem to be going to look at the, the whole scope of it. I think there's some worry that it may not be looking at children sufficiently. I know some people have talked to me about how they don't think it's focusing as much on the, the damage that children have received from the, the pandemic, which is unfortunate because they seem to have been the most badly affected in, in lots of ways and, and will be for some time to come. But I mean, we could end up with sort of two, three inquiries. It could be that this drags on forever. And in, you know, in a sense, it's necessary, but I kind of do think at some point, we have to get out of the pandemic, don't we? We can't just be constantly looking back and, and, and focusing on it and think we need to sort of move forward. Do you think there will be lessons learned? Will we end up with a kind of conclusion that maybe we should take a more Great Barrington Declaration approach where we shield the vulnerable and the rest of us get on with our lives? I really hope so. I think Great, the Great Barrington Declaration got a lot of stick and it, it wasn't really justified. I think the idea, looking back, it was, you know, in a way, it was kind of what Sweden did slightly. I mean, they didn't actually protect their vulnerable that well, Sweden, but they did kind of um, give people the opportunity to just make decisions for themselves and look after themselves and take precautions when they wanted to without shutting the country down. And, you know, they have one of the lowest excess death rates of, of anywhere. So... I do think that should be a lesson in how differently we can handle things. I'm not sure we'll learn that lesson. I, I, I fear that the same people who had the biggest say during the pandemic will be wheeled out um, to have the biggest say again in the inquiry. I just think that's how it will work and it will be very sad if that happens, but I, I fear that it will happen like that. 
That's my fear as well, Sarah. Now, Sinetra Gupta, who is Great Barrington, obviously is a great friend of Planet Normal. Sinetra's point has always been is that modelling, scientific modelling, was not there to tell politicians what to do. It was to provide a range of options. Looking back at that, do, do you feel now in some way that the science that, that you write about was traduced? Yeah. I mean, I, I was a big critic of models because I, I felt they often had the wrong data in them. They were often too late. Everything was moving too fast to really rely on them. And it would have been far better to be relying on real world data. And I think most people accept that now. And I know definitely during the Omicron wave, when the modelling was suggesting horrific numbers, the government basically abandoned it and just relied on what was happening on the ground. And we you know, ended up not having restrictions and it, it worked out. And I think, I hope that that's a lesson that's been learned, definitely, because I've interviewed Graham Medley about this, who was over at um, London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, who was the liaison between the government and, and SAGE at the time. And he said, he specifically said, model should never have been used to lock down the country. You know, I think there's a quote from him, a week's a long time in politics, but it's an age in a pandemic. And you can't be relying on models that were produced 10 days earlier to say where you're going to be in the next six weeks, which is what they were doing and got highly criticised for. I mean, the information commissioner was involved because they, they were so badly using models and interpreting them wrongly. So hopefully if we do it again, they won't rely so heavily on them because I think they have been shown to be quite flawed at times. That's a fantastic interview, Sarah. Planet Normal listeners know all about where Alison and I come from, our journalism, what our animus is, what drives us. You're a very highly respected Fleet Street writer, but you're not known as somebody who has this kind of really outgoing personality. So just tell us a little bit about your background and what makes you the journalist you are. Why do you put yourself through the pain, the trauma of national newspaper journalism? That's a good question. And I, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking exactly that quite often, actually. Um, and I don't have an answer. And perhaps today's the day that I'll decide it's not worth it anymore. I don't have an agenda at all. I've never really been that political on either side, which I think just allows me to just tread a line where I just, I'm just looking at the evidence. I just want to know what the truth is. I don't care who's wrong or right. I don't care if I'm even wrong or right. I just want to get find out what's going on. So I guess that drives me background wise. Um, I did a degree in archaeology way back in, back in the day and then started working on a local newspaper. Um, and then moved to London working as a, a court reporter at the old Bailey doing lots of crime reporting and then went to the Guardian newspaper. Um, and came to the Telegraph and worked on the news desk as a news editor for a while. And then for the last sort of 10 years, I've been doing this. So sort of come full circle back to a sort of my original science background or sort of social sciences background. But yeah, I think, yeah, I just, I kind of, I'm just a bit, I guess, intrepid to, to get to, to get to find out what's going on. I don't like people keeping me in the dark about stuff. So maybe that's, <laughs> maybe that's it. <laughs> well, you're, you're a credit to the Telegraph. Sarah, we wanted to have you on and tell you how much we admire your work. And thanks so much for joining us here on Planet Normal. Now it's time for our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co. 
uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love reading them. Liam, by the way, fantastic amount of love from listeners for your interview with Ross Clark about his excellent Not Zero book. But just starting now, a number of readers, Telegraph readers, commenting on my Dominic Raab article. You can find the link to that article in the show notes. John says, it is actually an attempted coup. Senior civil servants trying to maintain power by deliberately failing to deliver on a massive scale, playing games with woke agenda, working from home, etc. It is effectively a campaign of civil disobedience. Robust politicians who take them on are being subjected to campaigns of trumped up charges and anecdotes of microaggressions to distract them from their purposes of reform. They and the union bosses have common cause to make the UK ungovernable. Putin is very grateful. And here's a really good one from Claire. In part, the endless accusations of bullying are the direct result of indulging people in their endless quest for mental well-being and the ability to bring their whole selves to work. There is no longer any understanding that the workplace might be a rather different entity from a gathering with your mates and that there are some parts of your personality that you don't parade at work. Of course, Rob was also tainted with the nasty Tory tag before he did anything at all. Tories equal very, very bad, nasty, far-right people, according to the many overgrown children in the adult kindergarten we now inhabit. People are traumatised just by being in the same room as people who don't share their political opinions. I love that adult kindergarten. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, it's great. This is from Larry. Dear Alison and Liam, thank you Planet Normal for your excellent feature on Net Zero. Ross Clark's comments about the 2050 target set in law without a plan or cost analysis really resonated. In a few years from now, we'll be forced to buy electric cars and even worse, install heat pumps in our homes. I live in a three-storey 1960s townhouse and I've had expert advice regarding installing a heat pump. The cost would work out at between £10,000 and £15,000, completely prohibitive for a pensioner like me. But just as concerning is that the whole of my existing gas central heating system would have to be ripped out and replaced with a completely new system of piping, larger radiators, as well as a whole set of new components for which there's no physical space. Connecting the air source unit that would be located in my tiny garden through to the house would involve chasing through concrete floors. Undertaking this would wreck every room in my house. My wife and I have spent years making it a really lovely home. There's no way we'd ever choose to invoke so much damage by replacing a perfectly good central heating system with one that's totally inappropriate. It's fine to ensure all new builds have a heat pump installed, but forcing people to retrofit heat pumps in their existing properties is morally wrong, says Larry. The technology simply isn't right at this point in time. Chris Skidmore MP is recommending to the government to bring forward the date of banning the sale of new gas boilers to 2033. I wrote to him with my concerns, but he never replied. Politicians like him have no real understanding about the financial and practical issues for ordinary people, but no doubt they'll plough on regardless of the consequences just so their ridiculous targets can be met. I love Planet Normal, says Larry, for speaking the truth about these important issues. Keep up the great work. Yours sincerely. Thanks, Larry, for that fabulous email. 
And on the same theme, Liam, we should comment, actually, that as part of the Rishi shuffle or the reshuffle, Grant Shapps, the ever malleable Grant Shapps, he's like the Cheshire cat, isn't he? He just turns up with a big smile. He is now the Minister for Energy, Security and Net Zero. Can we can we detect any contradictions in that job title? It's the push me, pull you <laughs> ministry. It's the it's the pantomime horse with two heads. <laughs> it really is. So, Ian, commenting on this appointment, so great podcast on climate change please make it your next crusade the appointment of Shaps as minister for energy security and net zero is very alarming he is the proud driver of a tesla and a multi-millionaire with no idea of the financial impact net zero policies have on normal people heat pumps are hugely expensive to install and run Electric cars are expensive, not practical for many people and have a huge manufacturing carbon footprint. Fracking has been banned because it is perceived that local people object. I suspect the real reason is a refusal to back anything fossil based. But no offer has been made to compensate those affected to persuade them to change their minds. Yet onshore wind and solar is bulldozed through whether there are local objections or not. North Sea exploration has been decimated by deliberate government obstruction delivered by climate zealots of the likes of Chris Skidmore. Furthermore, had the government targets been met for electric vehicles take up and heat pump installation, how would the grid have coped now? Where can the electorate turn for an alternative view? All mainstream parties are totally committed to the net zero dream. The likely outcome is a none of the above reaction by abstaining, spoiling your ballot paper or staying home and watching Netflix unless they turn the electricity off in. Unless they wake up soon, the Tories are toast. And I was a Conservative Party member and voter for 52 years until they made such a hash of Covid and then double down with the net zero. I was going to say this next word, but it's rude. But I got away with bollocks last week so let's call it bollocks in the current cabinet are a collection of (laughs) with an x (laughs) with an x bollocks the current cabinet are a collection of faceless non-entities indistinguishable from the civil servants who control them keep up the good work both of you and don't let the 77 brigade put you off kind regards ian well said ian And on that bombshell, that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. If you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There are lots of suspiciously good ones there at the moment. And as we know, they can't all be written by the Halligan diaspora. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett and our editor Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other until next week. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs> <laughs>